Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered podcast, our guest is El Kamihira, a multidisciplinary director whose work has focused on using storytelling as a tool to spark conversation about women's lives and gender inequality. We speak with El today about one of her current projects, Jennifer 42, an animated documentary that takes a close look at the role of coercive control in the true story of the murder of Jennifer Magnano and El's advocacy work supporting Jennifer's Law, a related proposed legislation under consideration by the Connecticut Legislature. Welcome, Elle. Thank you. Very glad to be here. You know, you and I have known each other for a little bit now, and I'm so excited that I finally get to talk to you about your project, Jennifer 42. I don't think I've actually, I can think of any other documentary that's used animation as a tool. Are you the first? If you think of films like uh, Waltz with Bashir or Persepolis or even The Breadwinner, there are some, and it's actually gaining popularity now, animated documentary. Animation is used more and more in documentaries to uh, sort of illustrate things that are hard to, hard to film. But yeah, it's a first fully animated documentary feature. Why don't you tell us what the story is about and what made you decide to work on it? Yeah, so I was researching coercive control and I was talking to Evan Stark and a lot of other experts. And actually, Evan Stark tipped me off to this investigative report that had been written about Jennifer's case. And I read it and just felt like the story was just so emblematic of not just of coercive control, but how the system is just not equipped to deal with domestic violence and what happens to women in long abusive relationships. And so I started with interviewing Michelle Cruz, who investigated and wrote that report. And then I started working with the Jennifer's, you know, surviving children, Jessica, David, and Emily, and uh, just built it from there. Then at some point, when we had a rough cut of the story and started selling it, we got interest from places like ID and uh, Discovery and so forth, but they wanted to make it into just another, we call them dead woman story, you know, cheesy recreations, you know, kind of documentary, you know, very, a little bit like newsy, sensational, tabloidy stuff. And I just didn't want to go down that route. I didn't want to, you know, sell the kids down the river for that. And, And it was a bigger story to my mind. And so we conceived of it. I have background in animation and motion graphics a great deal. And um, so we decided to conceive it as, a, as an animated film. And we started working with animation director Yulia Voditskaya. And she 
kind of landed on this very gorgeous, uh, cinematic, poetic animation style, um, handmade and and digital both. And um, yeah, and so we've developed, you know, a whole aesthetic around, you know, that fits the fits the seriousness of the story. So when you first think of animation, I think, oh, this is something that could be accessible to all ages. Is your intention that everybody can watch this and that it's sort of pared down so that the elements of the actual crime can be either masked or or kind of, you know, have innuendo? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, it was that was kind of our other big reason to go with animation too is that it's a difficult story clearly and but it's also a very common story across the world world it's really global and so animation allows it i i think makes it a lot more accessible to a lot more people and like you said there's like all these like difficult thorny situations and experiences that the the kids describe we can uh, you know paint a picture of in a way that's not that's easier to take in so when you first reached out to Jennifer's children how long after their mother's death was that so this she was um she was uh, killed in 2007 and I started talking to them around 2014 or so, and so it had been it had been seven years. But I tell you, you know, they were you know the ages they were at the time that this happens was nine, fifteen, and twenty one, and so seven years later, you know, I, I didn't start I didn't talk to Emily at all, and they were still very much dealing with the fallout and the trauma of having experienced the, the loss of their mother in that way and their father. So can you tell us briefly what were the facts behind the case um, and how Jennifer came to be killed? Basically, the, the story is, I don't want to give the, away the whole story, but she and her children escaped after 15 or so years of like escalating course of control and abuse and it had hit a breaking point they made an escape together and got away scott started hunting them down and they had to save themselves again they ended up in california uh, because they couldn't find help locally as a family and so uh, they ended up in California, and from there, you know, the system there kind of wrapped their arms around the family, and they started to recover and get assistance and uh, work on divorce and other uh, the other issues. And Connecticut compelled Jennifer to come back to testify in person. They would not allow her to stay in California where she was safe, um, so they made her come back to fight for custody and resolve her divorce and the other charges uh, that was um, that she had made against Scott. So she came back and while she won her divorce and custody and so on, it gave Scott a window to access her and he ambushed her and killed her. 
So who raised the kids after their mother and father's passing? Uh, right. So this was a murder-suicide where Scott uh, shot himself after. And so they, the kids lost both of their parents on the same day. Emily was nine, and she was adopted by family. David, I think, was about to go off to college and or maybe had just one year left uh, and then went off to, to college. And um, Jessica was adult. So you had approached them seven years after their parents died. From your interaction with them, did you sense that they had an understanding of what coercive control was and what they experienced, not just their mother, but they themselves as the children, as the witnesses of that? They definitely did not have a term for what happened to them. I think to their minds, uh, Scott, their dad, had kind of become crazier and crazier and more and more abusive. They certainly knew they were being abused. They certainly knew their mother was being abused. I don't think they understood the sort of power and control dynamic that was part of the what, what he was doing to them. And I, I don't think it's been till really now in the last couple of years when coercive control has become such a you know, sort of talked about subject, uh, that they're starting to really get an idea of the, what, what happened to them. And I think Jessica now is having kind of a, a, an awakening, um, kind of understanding that what he was actually doing. And it's funny because, well, it's not funny, but, uh, you know, this, this reverberates in their lives, uh, you know, in their relationships, and they have a lot of sort of ill effects of gr having grown up like this, some fears of, fears of not, I don't want to speak for them, but like fears of, you know, doing the wrong thing or breaking the rules or even making decisions on your own because they literally, their entire childhood was entirely controlled. And it's important to know too, you know, they're, you know, each course of controller has unique ways of, of doing things, but he, the investigator, Michelle Cruz, said uh, after she wrote the report that this was the most extreme case of coercive control that she had ever that she had ever come across in her career and i think that says something he was just there was not a moment of their day of anything that they did that they didn't need permission from him to do they had to keep him 100% informed where and you know how they moved about who they saw they had rules for washing their hands and and face and the, the you know temperature of the water and absolute how to flip a light switch how to uh, vacuum how to wipe a kitchen counter every single move they made as a person had was you know had, was ruled so when people describe those kinds of behaviors and having basically your everyday choices be policed you know, to that level, it usually creates a high degree of anxiety in the person. And that anxiety can often be mistaken as mental illness or a symptom of mental illness rather than as a symptom of being coercively controlled. Is that something that you observed 
in this investigation that there was a a lot of clear manifestations of the impact, long-term impact of coercive control? Absolutely. You know, uh, the three kids are individual people, of course, and they deal with the fallout in in different ways. Um, but I think, you know, it's very clear that each of them have their own, you know, challenges with life, life management, life, just um, emotional health, mental health, relationships. Absolutely every aspect of their lives are impacted by their childhood and and uh, how, 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 you know, this long-term abuse that, that they went through. So this is also something within the system, whether it's family court or criminal court, but more family court in the child welfare system, where individuals who are part of that system tend to downplay the impact of children being present in a domestic violence situation as not being victimized, as not being harmed. Have you seen, did you get a chance to witness, to interview any of those collateral people as part of this project? Uh, uh, no, we we didn't. We had some interviews with, uh, you know, social workers and shelter workers that worked with the family, but not, and of course, Michelle Cruz, who came to it after the fact. But just judging from my conversation with the kids themselves, it was clear that they were being treated as bystanders or people who were not, you know, them themselves co-victims. The case was focused on Jennifer, their mother, only, and they just weren't taken into account. So you've known the kids now, I guess, for seven years. Has there, you know, over time, over this period, as they have become more informed about coercive control and more active in advocacy around addressing it, have you seen their perspective towards their father change? Some people, you know, have very mixed feelings towards their parent who was the perpetrator of abuse. Sometimes people might call it trauma bonding or just being able to love someone who abuses. And I'm, I'm, that's, that's a yeah. philosophical question that I still struggle with. I don't know if that's possible. I feel like as you learn more, it's hard to still have a positive feeling towards someone if you recognize, the more you recognize their impact on you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I think is that they were so, Scott was so heinously abusive, actually, to all of them in different ways, that they, and they are, they are, are, and were so attached to Jennifer and so thoroughly in her court, they survived together and protected each other, the kids and she. And so I don't think they are very conflicted about how they feel about Scott. I think Scott sort of became a thorough villain 
in their minds. Um, but I, I know what you're saying, and I know how that can occur. And I, and I think they think of earlier in their childhoods when he hadn't escalated to the point where he did, uh, you know, when he was calmer, or there were calmer periods, or he wasn't quite as abusive. And they try to think of that, I think, fondly. But it's, um, but it's hard, because they lost their mouth. Yeah, I, I, I just, you know, recently I saw an episode, I, I guess it's okay to talk about it. Um, there's a TV show called A Million Little Things. And one of the characters is struggling with addiction. And he actually is in a wheelchair. Uh, it, he was in an accident and he needed painkillers. So he, he um, fell back on the wagon and he fell off the wagon. And when, when it came to a head, and he had to admit to his wife that he was taking drugs again, uh, and he was going to check himself into rehab. They had a conversation with their son, and the son, I think, is maybe like, I don't know, 10 in the show. And the father was really worried that the son was going to reject him. There was this very frightening, violent incident that he had just witnessed. The son had just witnessed his father participate in before he decided to come clean. And the son actually was very supportive of the father. And what was shocking, but not surprising to me, is that in the next scene, he says to his mother, it's all your fault. Because you went back to work after the accident, you know, when the father had to be in the wheelchair. And if you had just given him more attention, this wouldn't have happened. And so this kind of like tendency for us as individuals in a society to blame women, even though she was also being victimized by that situation as well, because he had lied to her and everything. So I just thought that was such a telling scene because, you know, when it comes to domestic violence, it's so easy for children. It's also very common for children who are witnesses to the violence to blame the victim, to blame the mother. And I'm glad that this is not the case here. Yes, me as well. And I think it speaks to, you know, kind of the strength of Jennifer and the fact that she had such, uh, she bonded so closely with her kids and she she protected them so much. But I also have to say, you know, along those lines too, is that, you know, part of the <laughs> crucial issue in the story was that when, you know, Jennifer and the kids first escaped, they were met with such lack of empathy and such indifference and such um, cavalier, you know, attitudes from the police, from social workers, from shelters, that they had to escape town because they just could not find people that took them seriously, or that would believe that they were even in danger. They knew how dangerous Scott was, but they could not convince anyone of that. What were some of the, the signs that they had shared with these professionals, police or social workers that were ignored? They kind of, the family had, were so terrified of Scott and Scott had kind of um, created this, you know, persona where he was this charming, caring dad to their, you know, their town, the school, you know, their community, that the family sort of played along and propped that image up of uh, 
happy family because they he was such a monster at home that he you know they they complied they just complied with the making themselves look like a normal family to the outside which is very sad as a follow-up question what was it that jennifer what made jennifer fearful were there things that scott did or said that made her fearful to to actually move and leave the city yeah, leave no, the I mean, state threatened to kill her and you're saying that his direct threats were completely ignored yes absolutely so was it that the police said they didn't have enough information because it was just verbal threats there was nothing no physical evidence no physical harm had taken place yet they the Plymouth Police Department ha- will not speak so they will not speak to me or anyone about the case and they do I know they feel terrible about what happened but it's a great big mystery why they didn't because when Jennifer first reported when she left she had met with police officers and gave a very very detailed statement about the abuse that she had suffered the assaults the sexual assault against Jessica you know money crimes etc etc and that report was not filed it was simply not acted upon and you know he had threatened her and the kids on a regular basis uh you know saying i'll take you out into the woods and tie you to a tree and torture you till you beg for death and they had no reason not to believe him what about people like their doctors pediatricians the teachers in the school were there anybody was there anybody in the story that believe the children or or Jennifer and did something? They said nothing. The kids said nothing. They conspired together. They wanted to. They spent their lives wanting to talk to the school police officers, the, you know, various people that they had around them. But it really wasn't until just a couple of years before the escape that Jennifer opened up to her best friend, Tracy, who's also part of the film, and uh, started to divulge what was happening. So up until then, they had really just hidden it. So that's interesting, because I think a lot of people stereotype abused children as having academic challenges in the classroom, or, or behavioral problems at school, and that there are outright sort of overt symptoms of distress. Uh, whereas you know, clearly, if the teachers and the educators in their lives didn't see any reason to intervene, there probably wasn't any overt yeah. signifiers, I'm I, guessing. I, Is that I, right? I don't think anyone could have told. And in fact, uh, Jennifer's best friend, when she finally did say what was happening, did start to tell the, tell stories. Tracy was just bawled over, like she couldn't believe what she was hearing. Uh, so, so thoroughly hidden. And the kids, yeah, the kids played along the whole way through, did not, I think they just, I I think they felt that if they said something, they thought they were going to come home and find their mother killed. They were so that terrified. Every day they went to school not knowing if they were going to 
come home and, and Jennifer still be there. Was there anything different about the service professionals in California that made them accept and believe Jennifer and assist the family? Well, I think generally, I think California is more progressive, you know, overall than the rest of the country. I have to say that. But aside from that, you know, she called the national hotline and the national hotline and said, I can't find local help because I have a a male, you know, teenage male son son, and and an adult daughter and they won't take us together and we uh, I won't separate. So the national hotline found a shelter in Van Nuys, California and uh, who would take them in as a family and they, and and that's really the only place in the country where they could go. And so they hopped on a hopped on a train. That's amazing that as big as this country is and as well resourced as we are, there's only one place for this particular family. I mean, just imagine like for anybody else, that means, that, you know, what chance exactly. do the rest of us and have? It's not like, you know, escaping is this clean thing where you just like walk out the door. You know, women who are being abused or families who are being abused mostly have children, animals, all kinds of relationships that uh, that aren't so easy to, you know, and here we ask them to go on lockdown to separate from all of their normal lives and basically agree to imprisonment somewhere else uh, where they can't work, they can't go to work, they go into hiding. And uh, whereas, you know, Scott, the abuser, had free reign. So this work has, in some ways, inspired you to take on more of an advocacy role, uh, especially for the children and the family within Connecticut. So there's a law being proposed called Jennifer's Law after both Jennifer Magnano and a different Jennifer. Jennifer Dulos, can you talk about that? This law has been in the works for a couple of years. It's proposed, it's drafted by a Senator Alex Kasser uh, in the Connecticut General Assembly. And it's uh, Jennifer's Law is Jennifer's plural law is, uh, like you said, named after Jennifer Magnano and Jennifer Dulos. And the uh, main thrust of the law is that it expands the definition of domestic violence to include coercive control and the full range of abuser tactics that abusers use against their, use against their targets. Uh, so not just a punch in the face, not just a physical, you know, physical assault, but all of the sort of controlling tactics, the isolation, gaslighting, threats, cruelty. So uh, theoretically, you would use this law to prove a pattern behavior. So it's moving away from incidence-based law, which is just an incident of domestic violence, to look at it as a pattern crime that occurs over time. And so as a as a victim, the state has to, you know, prove the pattern over time. And this law actually is a civil law that's being proposed. It's not impacting the criminal code. Family law and criminal law. And uh, it has a, has a lot of other aspects to it. We, you know, did a big judicial 
hearing for, in front of the Judicial Committee on March 24th. Uh, the kids testified and uh, lots of other survivors and advocates and experts. And so it's a big, comprehensive law. It's the first of its kind in the U.S. It also does things like mandate training for judges and other people in the system that touches domestic violence cases. It, it also mandates for victims of domestic violence to be able to testify remotely and not have to face their abuser in court. Had that law been on the books, you know, Jennifer would still be alive today. And some other protections. But yeah, it's a big modernization of domestic violence law. It was, to me, extraordinary that the hearing lasted for almost 11 hours, which yeah. which basically allowed for everybody who had volunteered to testify um, to have the opportunity to do so, and, and that the Connecticut legislators actually indulged in this exercise. I feel like that's probably never happened before. Is that, do you think it's reasonable to say that? It certainly felt like a, a sort of an extraordinary moment. I don't know because I'm new to politics, but there were some extraordinary people that testified also, along with all the victims and such. Evan Rachel Wood, the actress, testified uh, about her lived experience as, as being coercively controlled and abused. Evan Stark and Laura Richards. And it was a, a, an extraordinary sort of moment, I felt. And when I was watching the, unfortunately, I haven't been able to watch the whole thing, but when I was watching, I felt very encouraged that Alex Kasser seemed to be very informed, more informed than any other uh, legislator that I've met <laughs> or been you know, aware of. Meanwhile, the people who were part of the established domestic violence coalitions expressed opposition or expressed skepticism. And then I've subsequently, I've learned from you, they're expressing opposition. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so, you know, they, the big five sort of domestic violence organizations in Connecticut, federally funded and supported and, you know, very sort of political bodies, created a rival law not, not them, but a senator that they support. A rival law that also proposes coercive control, but it was different in some very crucial ways. One of them was that you can only use it when you're seeking a restraining order, so very, very narrow use. And then they would mandate the victim to prove intent. So not only does she have to prove that she's been grievously harmed, but she now has to prove why her abuser did what he did. So that to us was absurd on its face. But so what happened after the hearing was that they sat down together, these two camps, you know, Alex Kasser and us and, and uh, the opposition, and they combined the laws, which retained a lot of the more comprehensive language that Alex Kasser had formulated for for our law. But, you know, there's a there's still a lot of sort of political shenanigans and backroom negotiations that are happening that we're concerned about. One of the things is that they wanted to, you know, strip the name Jennifer for Jennifer's law and just make it 
SB 1091. And one, it's hard to understand why they would. Um, I think that's a very unusual move to strip crime victims' names off of a law. Um, it's, but it's also kind of stripping symbolic power from uh, from a law. And um, we think it's really unfortunate. We're fighting a tooth and nail. We're trying to not, you know, not have that happen to our minds. It was named Jennifer's Law for two women who have been murdered as a result of coercive control. And it needs to stay that way, the name. And so that, and then we're, we're hearing things that they're trying to, you know, sort of make the criticism from the other side about coercive control law in general is that it's too broad that we're trying to police marriage or relationships or personal behavior and that it's too, too much of an infringement. But to our minds, it's really the opposite. It's very specific law that talks about domestic violence the way it's experienced by women uh, and children who are victims of it. And it makes it more truthful to just reality as it is. Uh, And it's very much needed because guess what? After 50 years of and trillions of dollars and a domestic violence response system that's huge and all this expenditure of both money and effort have not driven those numbers down. The number of women killed, the number of familicides, the uh, number of you know children caught up in it or murdered as a result, uh, and also injuries and destroyed lives. It's not quantifiable. And so I don't think we've had the success that we should have had. And so we really need to just have a different look at it and bring it up to date. It's happening in other parts of the world and they're seeing results. You know, Scotland, Wales and UK have course of control laws and it's saving lives, simply put. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of the conversations that are happening in the I guess, domestic violence advocacy space use the phrase like centering survivors agency, which I think is misleading because it hides the fact that survivors don't have agency when they are still in the relationship. And it creates this false equivalence, like the abuser has agency and the survivor has agency and she can leave. And I think that one of the words, I can't remember which documentary or show I saw recently, maybe you were part of the one who even suggested it to me, that instead of referring to survivors leaving an abusive relationship, we need to start reframing it as escaping. And if survivors are escaping, they don't have agency. And so to cast it that way is flawed analysis to begin with. And so that kind of, that opposition from the DV community or the, I should say, the domestic violence establishment, like you refer to them as, needs to be problematized. 
Um, I agree, and there's a lot to unpack in that. You know, I think we have a very problematic, as a culture, we have a very problematic relationship with victim, with calling anybody victim, uh, because it, like, kind of goes against this, you know, overall belief of individual power, and that very hard to sort of swallow the idea that another person can take power away from you. Um, but I actually think victim in this case is the absolute appropriate title because no matter how strong the woman is, no matter how empowered, no matter what she does against her abuser or no matter what she does to be free, to think freely and act freely, she can't because she is being attacked from all sides. And like you referred to earlier, the crux of being a victim of domestic violence is that you are being controlled. You as a person, like all of your, the various ways we act in the world are completely curtailed by someone who has taken control of you as a person physically, with threats, with intimidation, with rules, with regulations. And uh, they do talk about it, you know, Evan Stark and others talk about it in terms of being a prisoner of war and uh, prisoner of war mental state where you're, you're brainwashed. And so clearly victims who are still in that controlled are not in a state of mind to or in a state to lead a, a movement like they need help. Well, we should talk also and explore more the um, uh, funding streams, you know, and its relationship to domestic violence agencies and the people who are working within them. Because, uh, I mean, there's this term, the nonprofit industrial complex. And of course, you've heard me use the term domestic violence industrial complex. And within that space, there are a lot of people who call themselves victims advocates, but they don't actually give victims uh, more, um, I, I don't, okay, let me just say this. They call themselves victims advocates, but they're giving abusers or perpetrators just as much, much attention. And some people have used the term, uh, they're abuser apologists or abuser sympathizers. And I think that that actually exposes not their compassion, but their hypocrisy or duplicity. Because in no other crime, in no other sort of system of oppression, are we sympathizing or expecting empathy for the oppressor, right? Like, we wouldn't have people who are working with Holocaust victims and survivors and also sympathizing with the Nazi concentration camp guards. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I always think of, (laughs) I, I always feel like, the people who work in big agencies and, like you say, in the DV industrial complex, they should be have the urgency. They should have be working like they want to be out of a job a couple of years from now to be so passionate about ending violence against women that that's where all the effort goes. But I think what happens when things get institutionalized like this is that it takes on a life of its own it becomes its own sort of structure where with hierarchies and you know relationships and what they do end up working for 
is maintaining that, you know, not only their own position, but the positions of all their peers and all their co-workers and colleagues. So it becomes like this ecosystem that they're happy in. Meanwhile, downriver, there are, or upriver perhaps, there are women who are really suffering and not being protected. And so to me, there's just not enough urgency in these advocate organizations. It's like this big sort of bureaucratic machine that is very far removed from the actual reality of what women experience in their in their home. So as someone whose expertise is in storytelling, how do you think we can make this problem something that more people are invested in? Well, I think like with all storytelling, and I, I do think, you know, media and f- film, television, and so forth has a key role to play in like telling stories that that just kind of open a window to these issues and to the lives of women that, that isn't like romanticized and telling these stories like in a, in a way that that's true to real lives of women. Media, television, film has a huge role to play in terms of telling, uh, telling women's stories that are true to how we actually live and experience, you know, our relationships. And certainly when it comes to abuse and, you know, what role men play in our, our lives. And so I'm interested as a, as a filmmaker and a, as a, you know, storyteller in talking about and kind of like shedding light on and and uh, kind of looking into more of the darker places where inequality between the sexes really get ugly. Isn't that sort of the eternal struggle, the proverbial struggle, which is how do you get people to care about stories that aren't their own? So like the unbelievable was great. I loved it. But how many men actually saw that? And then, you know, with regard to this this whole genre, I think, I think, I don't know if this is the case. I haven't verified it, but true crime is one of the most popular, both documentary genres, as well as in podcasting. And yet, I don't know much about true crime really providing an avenue for moving the listener and the listener base, the fan base into advocacy, into action. Like maybe, you know, like making a murderer, there were things that happened there. There was enough attention drawn to it. Even with serial uh, Nan's case, there was enough attention and skepticism that maybe there was like another retrial effort and there was some success there. But in general, I feel like people's response towards true crime is the relationship to true crime is more as a voyeur. Yeah, I don't think it's a a monolithic audience for true crime. I think people come to it from different places, firstly. But I do think that the true crime stories that has an ethical, you know, center that really are not just looking at it from a sensation point of view or it really wants to delve deeper into sort of justice issues and ethics and morality and that, you know, kind of attack bigger questions. I do think those pieces draw more attention. But then, of course, you have you have 
a lot of these like sausage factories where it's just sensationalist true crime after true crime and the force kind of entertainment purposes and I do have an issue with that you know I call them dead woman stories and that is that is a lot of what it is it's kind of making you know the murder of women entertainment and I think it speaks to our lack of interest in women's lives and that women's lives are fodder and I don't like to I don't like that I I want to move against that in any way I can I don't know if if you watch SNL but I literally just yesterday I was catching up on my episodes and there was one with um, it was the one where Nick Jonas hosted and there was a clip in there a parody the parody was of was almost like a PSA for true crime and women's crimes shows on TV. And so the the clip was, you know, all the men left the homes and then the women secretly are watching their true crime shows on TV and indulging in it. And that's what they do at home. And so in a way, I mean, what you're saying is so relevant because women themselves are objectifying their own victimization and consuming it. Yes, but I also have another theory about about why women are so attracted to true crime in particular, is that I think in a sense, and you know, I don't want to be controversial, but like in a sense, I think it tips us off to dangers and uh, how men are dangerous. I think a little bit we're being sold a lie that men are safe, safer than they actually are, and that we're not being properly warned growing up what a dangerous world it is we're stepping into as women. And so true crime, I feel, is an antidote to that lie. It's a little bit like this is how it husbands kill their wives and hide it. You know, husbands disappear their wives. You're basically saying it's kind of like this hidden message to women of what to look out for. But I actually think it's the opposite. I think it's actually normal, making it so extreme, so much an outlier that women don't even recognize the signs in their own relationships. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, uh, Exactly where you were saying. And every true crime product is like, uh, so, sort of broadcast its its uniqueness. This has never happened before. This has this like unprecedented thing has happened. This like never before told story, and of course, it is an oft told story, and it's a routine event that women are are murdered, and so it's very very untrue. But those contradictions can exist at the same time. They're both can be true. Well, we've come to the point of the conversation where I ask every guest a series of questions that I call the engendered questionnaire. The first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? What isn't at stake? I mean, to my mind, violence or threat of violence is the singular thing that prevents women from living lives as free persons. It's the one thing that must go away if we are to be free. What gives you hope? What gives me hope are like 
feminists all over the world, for one. I take strength from every feminist everywhere. And what also gives me hope is like the new, these new conversations that are being had, uh, Me Too, and these kind of like bursts of, you know, controversy that lead to exciting conversations, you know, the Kavanaugh hearing, Alan V. Farrow, you know, things that both in the culture and, and in politics and no matter where they happen, these kind of like little explosions, the Polish women that are uprising for the or abortion rights and, you know, things that make you feel like, oh, people are fighting, people are fighting hard. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think back to, uh, to what must we do. I do think we have yet to start holding abusers and violent men accountable. We simply have never done it. And certainly when it comes to domestic violence offenders or abusers at home, stalkers, that, those kind, type of crimes, coercive controllers, people in the domestic violence uh, industrial complex will say, we will not be able to arrest our way out of this problem or things to that effect. And the thing is, we never did. We never tried that. We only a tiny, tiny percentage ever get charged, an even tinier percentage ever see any jail time. You know, we have all kinds of instruments to for uh, domestic violence offenders to avoid jail time. I simply think that unless they face consequences, it's just not going to stop. They're not going to stop abusing by themselves. They need to be held accountable. Thank you, Elle. I, I wish you the best of luck with Jennifer 42. And I look forward to when that film finally comes out. Me too. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.